this week I'm gonna continue with the story format that we've been using over the last several weeks. And um, last week, Leroy's talked about Noah and the covenant that God made with Noah in scripture and his promise to not flood the entirety of earth again and to not wipe out all of man. Um, and so she, she talked about that, um, but it was a covenant. Scripture says it was a covenant with Noah. And Noah had three sons, and one of them was named Shem. And among Shem's descendants was a man named Abram. And we all know him as Abraham, but he was the next man that God made a covenant with. In Genesis 15, 1 through 21, we see that just like he had to Noah, God made a promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he promised Abraham that he had brought him to this place to take possession of the land. And he called him Abraham. And so I just wanna read um, Genesis 15, 13 through 21. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go on to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so I wondered, you know, what did Abraham think about that? First of all, at this point in the scripture, Abraham has no children. He's just been told that he will, his descendants will be more numerous than the stars of the sky, and that in and of itself had to be mind-blowing, right? Um, but then he's also told, been told, you're gonna, I'm giving you this land and you're gonna take this land, but your descendants that are so numerous are gonna spend 400 years in slavery. It's kind of crushing, right? Kind of heartbreaking. Um, and yet, Abraham counted it joy because those descendants were going to exist and they were going to overcome and conquer because of the covenant that God was making with Abraham, the promise, the promised land. So God established a covenant with Noah, and then he established a covenant with Abraham. 
In Genesis, we see where he goes on and he establishes a covenant with Isaac, who is Abraham's son, and then again with Jacob, who is Isaac's son. So he was establishing a relationship with this lineage, these people. And so this is where we come back to where LaRoyce was at last week when she was talking about the, uh, excuse me, the Passover. Um, jumping 400 years into the future, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all living in Egypt as slaves. And God has sent Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And as Leroy said, it was the Passover that the way it happened was that there was sacrifice and blood was placed over the door. And that blood caused the angel of death to pass over, to leave that house. And we know from that blood that that night the houses marked with the blood of sacrifice lived and achieved freedom from slavery and those that didn't received death. They received death of their firstborn and also death of their way of life. That night the blood was literally a matter of life and death. So the next morning, Pharaoh says, be gone. And as the Israelites left Egypt, God laid out a plan for them. He began giving them clear directions and instructions and guiding their every step. They left so quickly, the Bible tells us they didn't have time to put the yeast in the bread they were making. And as God instructed them, they took everything with them that they could. In Exodus 12, 35 through 36, it says, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for, the, and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So in other words, after the death of their firstborn, the Egyptians were terrified, and they're just, take whatever you want, just go. Just get out. That's, that's what I need, I, you know. I, and if you think about this, the day before, before that angel of death, those same slaves, those same servants would not have had the gall or the audacity to ever consider coming to the master and saying, um, not only am I leaving, but I would like you to give me your gold and your silver and some real nice clothes for my journey. Yeah. Right? But that was what God had promised Abraham 400 years before. As the Israelites entered the desert, he directed them on all matters of their life. 
He told them what roads to take and what roads not to take. The route that they actually took to the Red Sea was not the fastest route to go. They could have gone through the Philistine country and it was actually quicker. But that's not the direction he directed them. And he sent a pillar of cloud by day to lead them and a pillar of cloud by night to lead them. Or, sorry, yes, by fire, thank you. Um, and I, I think about that and I'm like, how cool must that have been, you know? We know that from scripture, there were, at one accounting, at least 600,000 just men, just adult men over the age of 20. And you know, for every one of them, there was at least one woman and two kids. So they were a massive horde of people moving out. Imagine how big that pillar of cloud and fire must have been for them to see it and for them, it to lead them. I would really like to see that. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> so when he, they came to the Red Sea, he told them exactly where to camp so that they could fool Pharaoh, scripture says. And then in Exodus 14.4, it says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Not the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. So they are a massive horde of people and they are on the shore of the Red Sea. And God has hardened the hearts of the Egyptians on purpose. And they are barreling down toward them. And the people started to panic. Scripture says they cried out, let us go back. Better to be slaves than to die here in the desert. And Moses, he's trying to put on a good front. In 14.13, he tells the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the way we know it was a front is the very next scripture, the very next scripture, Exodus 14, 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch it out, your hand out over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. In other words, don't worry about what I'm doing back here. Move on. Get this show on the road. <coughs> so then the angel of God and the pillar of cloud moved from the front of the line to the back of the line and stood between them. And the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. 
and the angel of the Lord and the pillar of fire at the back were taking care of business, holding the Egyptians at bay. And then scripture tells us that the Egyptians tried to follow them to cross the Red Sea. And they were all destroyed. So this whole time, the Israelites, they don't really do anything other than follow instruction. And God delivers to them their first major battle against the Egyptians without them lifting a sword or a finger. All they had to do was move on. So at this point, God has killed the firstborn of the enemy. In Exodus 13, it says he has consecrated and claimed as his own the firstborn of all the Israelite people. He's freed them all from slavery. He's allowed them to plunder the enemy as they were leaving, so they're rich. He's led them by cloud and fire. He's parted the Red Sea so they could cross it. He's destroyed the enemy before their very eyes. And I think he has their attention. But he doesn't stop there. Next, he provides for them. He gives them manna and quail to eat. And he begins to teach them lessons. He tells them, you'll go out and you'll collect the manna every morning, except before the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, you'll collect twice as much. And he tells them, don't collect more than you need. There's no point. It'll be bad. And sure enough, that, that many people, you know, Scripture tells us, someone panicked and went, we're in the desert, we should get extra. It's here, we should take it, right? And they did, and they collected extra, and of course, they woke up the next morning, and it was rotted. And they had wasted their work and their energy, and they had to go out and collect more. But he also told them, don't collect on the Sabbath. You collect twice as much the day before. And miraculously, it wasn't rotted. He gives them water from a rock when they are thirsty. He leads them in a victory against the Amalekites who come and attack them. He not only has their attention, he has them completely reliant on him for everything, for their food, for their drink, for their direction, for their safety and protection. And next, he gives them a set of rules to live by. In Exodus 20, 1 through 21, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, it's not that the people didn't already have laws and rules that they followed. They did. And the Ten Commandments weren't foreign to them. The concept of thou shalt not kill, you know. These were not foreign concepts. Set concepts. He wasn't teaching them something new per se. In fact, throughout the Bible, there are multiple scriptures before the giving of the Ten Commandments for each of the Ten Commandments that tells us 
that these were common rules and laws that were followed. So why did he give them the Ten Commandments? Because he was doing something new. He was leading them directly. He was guiding their every step directly. And he was establishing him, them as his people, reliant on him in all ways. And he was changing their mentality. They had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. There was no one left alive who remembered what it was to be a free man. There was no one left who had not lived as a slave, except possibly Moses, and he wasn't going to live forever. The people had slave mentality. And when he gave them the Ten Commandments, he was ensuring there was no question about what his rules were. They were not rules from man. They were not teachings, and they were not old law. These were rules from God. They were rules from the God who had just destroyed the Egyptian army and the same God who was putting manna on the table every night. After God gave them the Ten Commandments, he began to outline everything else in their life in great detail. He told them how to handle servants, personal injuries against one another, how to protect their property, what the laws of the Sabbath were. He instructed them on the building of the tabernacle in great detail, including measurements and materials. He instructed them on the altar of burnt offering, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense. The list goes on and on. He even told them how to wash and what the priest should wear. He was leaving nothing to chance. He was building them into a nation with rules and guidelines and consequences, all of his making and design. Not the old way, my way. In Leviticus, he began to outline how he wanted his people to honor and acknowledge him with their offerings. Just like with our tithes today, he wanted them to bring him offerings, not because he needed it, but because he wanted to remind them that he was the source of all they had. Whether it was their flocks, or their grain, or even their relationships with one another. He was the source, and it all flowed through him, and it required offering and remembrance and acknowledgement. But he also knew that they weren't perfect. He never thought, these are my perfect people. Just the opposite, in fact. <laughs> Just the opposite. He knew they were going to mess up. And he knew that he'd given them Ten Commandments 
that they were completely incapable of keeping at all times. And because of that, God provided them with a way to be cleansed of their sin. In Leviticus 4, God outlines the sin offering. And I'm only going to read a portion of it. Leviticus 4, 1 through 12. I think that was on my list. Yeah. All right. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commandments, if the appointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the appointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his fingers into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, all the fat that is connected to the internal organs, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. Just as the fat is removed from the ox, sacrificed as a fellowship offering. When, then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the, idol, the hide of the bull and all its flesh, as well as the head and legs, the internal organs, and the intestines, that is, all the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean, where the ashes are thrown and, burnt, and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. I'm exhausted just reading it, <laughs> right? That was just one through 12. 13 through 21 is if the whole Israelite community sins. 22 through 26 is when a leader sins. 27 through 35, if a member of the community sins. But he laid out in great, great, detail what they were to do to have their sin forgiven, to be cleansed of their sin. And again, he was leading them. He was giving them rules and leaders and laws to live by. Instruction for almost every eventuality they would run into in life and instruction on how to honor him. The rules were to protect themselves from each other, from other nations, from other peoples, and from sin. Basically, anything that might come between them and him. 
He was building a nation that would follow instructions. God had promised Abraham the promised land. And now hundreds of years later, his descendants were going to be given the land. In Joshua 1 through, Joshua 1, 1 through 6, I think this is my last one here, yeah. Excuse me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' Moses's aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses." Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. God's memory was not short. He had not forgotten what he had promised to Abraham. He had not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. At times the people had, the generations had, but he had not. And when they fled the land and they became enslaved by Egypt, he rebuilt them as a people and he led them back into the land as he had promised to Abraham. But it wasn't about the land. It was about the promise. It was about the covenant. It was about the people. If God had just wanted the land, if he had said, I want those who serve me to live here, he could have influenced the people that already lived there. If he can bring plagues and pillars of fire and part the Red Sea, you know, it was a lot easier to start whispering to the people that already lived there. But he wasn't doing it what was easy. He was doing what he promised. In all of this, at no point did God tell the Israelite people that everything they were doing would save them. He gave them rules to follow. He gave them ways to cleanse themselves when they sinned. He gave them land and he gave them power. 
but he didn't say to them, you will be saved. But he promised. He promised them that a savior was coming. That a savior would shed his blood for us. That that life and death situation would mean life for us. And he promised. And the people believed him because they knew he had promised Abraham and he had delivered. In Isaiah 53, oh, I've lost my spot. The prophecies of Isaiah. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his, presence, in his appearance that, he, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one with, from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he cut off from the land, was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgress- transgressors. That was Isaiah prophesying the coming of our Savior. He was promising the people that you won't always have to sacrifice. That you won't have to keep putting blood on the door. That I'm going to shed my blood once and for all. And it won't matter anymore your lineage because of my lineage and because I'm claiming you all. Thank you for allowing me to share with you today. I couldn't help but think as Mary was going through the story of the power of story. I think all of us can remember sitting around listening to the grown-ups talk. You know, in my house growing up, we were kids were to be seen and not heard. I heard that a lot of times. I didn't have any problem with that because I didn't want to be seen anyway or heard either one. But I would slip in to where the old ones were talking and just sit over in the corner somewhere, sometimes over behind the table and just listen. And a lot of their stories formed who I was. And I think we've gotten away from that in the church, and that's one reason that we want to do at least this series in the form of story. One reason is just to show you that that's all it takes as you move around out there. Tell your story. Talk about how it touched you. Yes, keep it within the confines of Scripture, but tell your story. There are so many... uh, I don't know, I guess people groups, that their whole way of life has been formed by story. We ministered, we did, before we couldn't get there anymore, but we ministered to a lot of people down in the mountains of Mexico that they couldn't read, had not been able to for years, had no written language, but story. And people that would go in and just tell the story of God. And watch has the Holy Spirit done his work. And Mary, I was watching that as you were telling stories, doing a work in you. He's also doing a work in people. I don't know how many times during that Chelsea throw her head back and say, this is good. You know? And that, it is good, the story. So think about your story and who you can share it with. Story is not confrontational. Story is story. But it draws, it's got a power of drawing. And I'm afraid that if we don't start doing this, we're going to rewrite the story of the United States because the story that we're telling is a story of darkness rather than of light. So let these times challenge you. Again, those of you that are taking this challenge to present it, thank you. Thank you. It's all ages and all walks of life that are doing this, and it's an amazing thing. And it's hard. Because we've taught people you got to develop. Now, this is overstating, but an introduction, three points, and a poem, and a prayer. 
And, you know, we, we've tried to become very good at that, but there's none of that in this. It's just the story. Just the story. But it's got a power of the Almighty on it. I'm so thankful for those that took the challenge. It's been hard for me. I, you know, I, I'm one that has, has used story more than anything else as I work among those outside of our local house. And again, there God has convicted me. He said, why don't you use story in the house? Well, because I've got to develop this revelation. He said, I can reveal to them too. Why don't you use story? <laughs> yes, sir, I'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Father, thank you. Thank you for these that have taken the challenge. Thank you for these that are listening. And God, above all, let them take away the knowledge that they can do this. We love you. We praise you. Thank you so much for this group of people.